everyone, those who are joining us online and as well as those who are in the house this morning, I want to welcome you as we've come to worship the Lord and uh, study His Word together. Hasn't it been a sweet morning of worship already as we lift our voices to God and praise and adoration? If you'll find with me in your Bible the book of Romans chapter number 2. We are in Romans chapter number 2. Speedily we're moving right through the book and so we're in chapter number 2 already. And so if you'll join me in looking to Romans chapter number 2 and we're going to begin with verse number 1 in just a few moments. Today's message is kind of entitled God's Judgment on the Judgmental. And so as we look at this passage of scripture uh, it's going to speak to all of our hearts, and I think it would speak to yours and to mine both. There's some questions I've outlined for community groups and to help uh, in discussion, and they might be read to you sort of in a pretest form, and so you could guide some of your thinking today as we go into the text. First of all, question number one I might ask, is there anyone exempt from God's judgment? Why or why not? Number two, what are the characteristics of God's judgment? Number three, what are the differences between God's judgment and man's judgment? Aren't you glad there's a difference? Amen. Number four, what does the legalist or moralist, why does the legalist or moralist condemn himself or herself? What is the basis of God's judgment? What is the basis of God's justification? How will God judge the Gentile? How will God judge the Jew? Who will be the judge? And how is God's judgment part of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, those are 10 interesting questions, aren't they? And so uh, I, we're going to look into the scripture in just a moment. You know, as we think about judgment or judgmentalism or justice, or our evaluation of it, the audiences of the news are glued to the testimony and trial of Kyle Rittenhouse in recent days. This is the young man who shot three and killed two during the protests and riots last year in Wisconsin. The perspective from which you observe the testimony is our own experiences and our own prejudices and our own life experiences and they color the truth. The judge and the jury of peers must try to find the truth and make a just decision. People are divided I mean, they hear the same thing, and yet they have a completely different conclusion. Good people do. Christian people do. Religious people do. They come to a different place. Why? It's because our perspectives skew us, and our judgment is flawed. Now today's text of scripture expo exposes our problem when we judge other people. Paul here in, is addressing the moralistic and the judging of others. Both Jew and Gentile, perhaps both 
And it's the moralist. It's the person who thinks that they, that they, they, they have blinders on. They don't see their own problem, but they easily jump and see the issue of others. It reminds me of the Old Testament when the prophet Nathan comes to David. The king has committed adultery. The king has violated his own vows. The king has stolen another man's wife. The king tried to cover it up. The king, in the end, kills Uriah the Hittite and thinks he's gotten by with it. Nathan comes to him, the prophet, and he says to him, King, I've got an itch situation. There are two men in our country, and one is very rich and the other is very poor. And the very poor man only owns one small ewe lamb, and that little lamb is like a pet. He eats out of his dish. He, he nurses at his hand. He holds him in his lap. He sleeps with him. But a traveler was coming from a distant land and stayed with the rich man. The rich man didn't want to kill one of his vast animals, so many from his flock. And so he stole the poor man's little pet and killed him for their dinner. He said, what should be done? And David said, as the Lord lives, that man deserves to die. And Nathan looks at him and says, you are the man. God's blessed you. God anointed you. God made you king. God protected you from Saul. God has given you multiple wives and children and family. And you have stolen another man's wife. You have committed murder. And David confesses his sin. It's something very similar to that that Paul is doing in chapter number 2. Look with me in your Bible to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things based on truth. Do you think any of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immort immortality. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew, also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew, also to the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. For all who sinned without the law will also perish without the law. 
and all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles who do not, by nature, have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. On the day when God judges what people have kept secret, according to my gospel, through Christ Jesus. Amen. As we look into this passage of Scripture, it's easy for us to judge other people, isn't it? The other day I was waiting to go into a business, and I was in my car for a few minutes, there were some homeless guys standing there begging. Another one down, further down where the interstate, the ramp off the interstate begging and uh, panhandling. And I watched these guys as they were kind of behind a fence and they were swigging some uh, juice and whatever was in it. And, and they were smoking and then they were eating some candy, and then half of the two-liter bottle they threw over the fence in the yard, just littered it. One of the guys had his pants down. His, I can't ever figure this out. His britches were down, way down here, and his whole underwear is hanging out. And, and I thought, that seems like the most uncomfortable thing in the world, to try to walk like that. You know, immediately I began to judge him. Just across the street is McDonald's, and the McDonald's had yard signs all around it. it says now hiring $14 an hour. You know what I was thinking. But I wasn't thinking about, I wonder what kind of home he grew up in. I wasn't thinking about whether he had a mom or dad. I wasn't thinking about whether he'd ever been abused. I wasn't thinking about those things. I was just thinking about judging him. We attempt to excuse ourselves and condemn others at the same time. We're often looking for loopholes so that we are exempt somehow like we're privileged. But we all must peer into the word of God. And as we do, we find we see ourselves. This is the thing, what Paul has laid out in Romans chapter 1. He says, you see these unrighteous people, all of humanity. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We reject God's revelation. We exchange the truth for a lie. We've acted immorally. We've acted unrighteously. And we've destroyed our relationships. But we attempt to take ourselves off of the hook. This is what Paul's dealing with. And truth of the matter is, we must all flee to Jesus Christ in order to avoid the wrath of God. Because none of us are right in ourselves. The judgment of sin must be borne by the sinner if it's not placed on the Savior. And so my prayer this morning 
is this simply, may the Holy Spirit arouse you today from fatal ease and apathy and lethargy and denial. And may the Holy Spirit drive you by means of an awakening of your conscience to a sense of your own sin. And so you may come to rest in the grace that was manifest to you in the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now Paul begins in chapter 2, verse 1, in a movement from the plural to the singular. Therefore, whosoever of you, every one of you who judges is without excuse. He says it's moving from the they to the thou, to you. Those who are judge, idol worshipers, the immoral, the people of low character, they were judging them. You could almost hear it in their voices. Well, thank God we're not like them. They see their, others' sin, but not their own sin. And here's the issue. We often are all tempted to do that. It's easy to see sin in other people, but not in ourselves. This is the whole log and splinter deal in our eye, right? People come to see me in counseling to talk about relationships that's broken. And 95% of the time, they don't want to come and talk about all the ways they failed in the relationship. They come to want to tattle on the other person about how they've messed up. And I usually try to subtly move it toward how have you messed up? And this is exactly Paul's argument. First thing he says is God's judgment is inescapable. You cannot get away from it. There is no escape in his judgment. Number one, because you agree with God's ordinances and laws. In verse number 32 of the previous chapter, it says, although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, therefore. So he says, listen, one of the reasons that you're under judgment is that you have agreed with God's ordinances and laws. And since you've agreed that those are good laws and ordinances and you break the same, then you stand condemned, right? Many, many years ago, I was just a teenager. I was maybe 18 years old. I had gone to Missouri with my dad to go look at a school where I thought I might want to attend. And on the way back, I was driving. That was back, I told you these days, back in the old days when the speed limit was 55. I was speeding. My dad was sitting in the passenger seat sleeping. And a guy flew by me going way too fast. Now, I was speeding myself. I thought, look at that guy running by me just speeding like that. And pretty soon, I saw a Missouri Highway Patrolman fly by me, pull him over. I slowed way down. (laughs) But he got out of his car, pulled that guy over, then stood in the middle lane and looked at me and goes, pull over too. Had both of us get in the back of the car. He said, gentlemen, I'll never forget these words, in the state of Missouri, The speed limit's 55 miles an hour. 
Do you all know that? I was scared to death. He wrote his tickets. My father had something to say about that later. <laughs> it's easy to judge others, not judge yourselves. Secondly, you strictly judge others. You'll not escape because you yourself are strictly judging them. When you judge another, you condemn yourselves. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Judge not, lest ye be judged. He said, with the same measure that you judge, you will be judged. Listen, there's something that comes back to you when you judge others. Thirdly, you know God's judgment is true. It's always right. In verse number 2, Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. His judgment is always true. It's always right. It is always perfect. In John's Gospel, chapter number 8, verse number 16, Jesus said, And if I do judge, my judgment is true, because it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Wow. Verse 17 says, Even in your law it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I'm the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Jesus' testimony and Jesus' judgment is always true. He is never fooled. He is never manipulated. He is never wrong. And there's never a court of appeals. His judgment is always true. Third, fourthly, you know that God's judgment is certain. It is certain. Notice in verse number 3 of chapter 2, verse 3, do you think, he asked a question, rhetorical question, do you think any, of one, any one of you who judges those who do such things, yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? He said, do you think that you will escape his judgment? No, his judgment is certain. In a human court, in this world in which we live, in the court of law, you might escape a sentence. You say, Pastor Tim, how would we might escape a just sentence? Well, first of all, you might commit a crime, right? Probably most of us in this room. You may commit a crime that's never been discovered. Amen. I mean, you know about it, but it was never discovered. So you escaped it. Or maybe you escaped the jurisdiction where it happened. So maybe it was a crime that was committed in this county or this state, but you've moved. Or maybe you went to court, and even though you were guilty, there was a breakdown in the legal procedure, some violation, and you escaped the punishment that you deserved. Or fourthly, perhaps you were sentenced they put you in jail and you escape from prison and now you're a fugitive. But none of these things happen before God. His judgment is inescapable. You'll never get off. You can never hide. You can never manipulate the situation. 
I know this message is not fun, but I want you to listen to me clearly. God's not a fool. Amen. Whatsoever a man soweth, so shall he reap. Amen. We will all stand and give an account of our lives to God. There's no one you could know where you can go to hide from his presence. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shield, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Well, there's nowhere that God can't be and isn't present. Either, either in taking care of us or in judging us. In Psalm 32, listen to the words of David. As he felt the weight of his own guilt and sin. He said, I tried to hide it. And this was, the, this was what happened in my life. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was drained as this fever heat of summer. When I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not conceal my iniquity, I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I'm telling you, listen, my friends. Listen, it's inescapable. I read this week a story about a woman, a pastor was preaching revival many years ago in California in a small little town in California. There was a woman that was attending the revival services and she was under a great burden of guilt and, and she, he could tell there was great anxiety in her heart. And, and uh, about the third or fourth day, the pastor and the evangelist went by her house to visit with her. And as they were talking with her, he was asking about her spiritual condition and about what was happening in her own soul. She said, I've got to confess something to you, but I, I swear I've never confessed this to anybody else in my whole life. He thought, well, what could it be so bad? This single woman, older woman. He said, I committed murder. He was like, what? Many years ago, I lived in New York. When I was living in the city, a man took advantage of me. He raped me. And he threatened me. I lived in fear of him. In a boarding house one night, he came home drunk. Went into his room and fell on the bed, passed out. I went into his room and I turned on the space heater and blew out the pilot light. And I put a drug a rug over the door of the crack of the door and I went back to bed. Later, there was an alarm went off and they said the man had committed suicide. And she said, I left and no one ever knew. But God knew. And all of my life, I felt the burden that I knew I murdered. Even though it seemed like she had gotten off, there's no escaping 
with God. There's some of you here today, you feel that burden. There's sin in your own life that maybe no one else knows about. But God does. And you do. And the weight and the burden of that sin, you know you will have to give an account to Him for. Amen. There's no escape. Secondly, there's no excuse. There is no excuse because by judging others, we condemn ourselves. That's exactly Paul's argument in chapter 2. He says, when, he says, therefore, everyone who judges is without excuse. When you judge another, you condemn yourself since you do the same things. Verse 3, do you think, a rhetorical question, any of one of you who judges those who do those such things and do the same, that you will escape. As a critic, when you condemn, you condemn yourself. When you see sin in others, you must know that that sin is also in yourself. To be honest, you've never lived up perfectly to the law of the nature or law of conscience either. And you too have been a lawbreaker. The truth of the matter is the gentlest, the meekest, grandmotherly type of person who's ever spoke a word of harsh criticism against a tyrant or a despot, she herself is guilty of being sometime in her life dictatorial or controlling or manipulative or arrogant. So she too is condemned because when she voices her condemnation of another, she points the finger at her own soul. I just hate liars, don't you? Amen. Well, that's so easy for that to roll off my tongue. But how many times have I shaded the truth? How many times have I not told it just the way it is? How many times have I spun it for my own benefit? It's easy to judge others. But how about me? Donald Gray Barnhouse said, the conscience that makes you aware of imperfections in another finds written on itself the guilt of its own imperfections. You too do the same things, don't you? If you're honest. In chapter 2, verse number 17, he takes on the Jews. He says, you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. Know his will, approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law. And if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature. Verse 21, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you, do you commit adultery? Jesus' whole Sermon on the Mount is exposing this kind of judgmentalism and hypocrite kind of life. You're not exempt. There's no favored nation status 
before God. All of us will give an account. I don't care what race you are. Some of you think, well, you know what? I'm of a higher race than those savages that live over in wherever. You think just because your skin tone is a lighter pigment than somebody else's that you're better? That you get off? Because of your language, of your ancestry? No, there's no excuse. We are all descendants of Adam. We are all made in God's image. And we are all born in our sin and our iniquity. And we're all separated from God. And we're all dead in our trespasses and sin. And all of us need a Savior. Amen. You can't work your way to heaven. Amen. You think you're more cultured, more civilized? Well, I don't really have to be a... I don't really, I, I'm, I'm good, I'm good, I'm a good person, I'm civilized. Or we live in a civilized country. Really? So we go to fine universities and we get engineering degrees and we get good paying jobs and work in nice buildings and drive nice cars and live in nice homes. And we go and we design drones and satellites and missiles so we can kill other people. It's getting quiet, isn't it? You see, what Paul is arguing here is, who do you think you are? You point your finger at others. There's fingers pointing back at you. You've misunderstood. He brings a second rhetorical question here. Notice in verse number four. Do you have your Bible? Look at it with me. The second rhetorical question that he asks here, he says, or do you despise, do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Sometimes we try to argue like this, but I'm good. Look how God's blessed me. <laughs> I'm good. You know, he says, you don't understand God. You don't understand his long suffering. You don't understand his kindness. You don't understand his favor. You don't understand his blessing and his forbearance. You don't understand what theologians call common grace. And God has given you common grace. He's given you health. He's given you a home. He's given you a job. He's given you food. He's given you retirement. He's given you children. He's given you grandchildren. He's blessed you. But every blessing is a call to you. Turn from sin and repent. And on that day of judgment, when you stand there, you are without excuse. Amen. Because he will say, I lavished my grace on you, yet you rejected me. Hmm. The second thing we look at in this text is God's judgment on is righteous. It always is right. In verse number 5, he says, Because your hardened and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. God's righteousness is, all, God's judgment is always righteous. 
He says, first of all, there's an indictment he makes. He says, you're obstinate. The word that he uses here, he says, you're hard. Uh, you're hardened in your heart. The word hardened here is the same Greek word that doctors use for hardening of the arteries. Your, your heart is hardened. It's set in ways. It's unmoved. It's uncaring. It's incalcitrant. Your heart has become hardened and you're obstinate. Not only are you obstinate, but you're unrepentant. There's no repentance in your heart. There's no brokenness. There's no shame. No, no sorrow. No grief. The truth of the matter is, you say, Pastor, why in the world is Paul preaching this judgment? Because, folks, until you understand that we stand, it's not my brother or my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I am lost. I'm messed up. I am a sinner. And until you know that, and you're broken, and I rightly deserve his righteous judgment, that I don't run to him and say, God, help me or I die. I throw yourself on the cross of Christ. Amen. Repentance is turning. Yes, turning from sin. Turning back to God. Yes, God's judgment is coming. And it is righteous. In verse number 5, it says you're storing up, you're treasuring. Literally, King James translates it better here. You're treasuring up wrath. You're storing it up. God's righteous judgment and anger on our sin. Years ago, an evangelist was preaching a sermon. The title of the sermon was, Prepare to Meet God. <laughs> I've seen that on billboards before. Prepare to meet God. His first point is, prepare to meet God because you must meet God. Anybody ever have an appointment that you'd rather not keep? Amen. I had a bad tooth the other day. Had to go to the dentist. I really didn't want to go. But... That tooth hurt bad enough. I said, I'm going to the dentist. And he got out of his trusty wire pliers and pulled that baby out. After he gave me a shot or two in the mouth. Thank the Lord. I mean, I'd rather not pay my taxes to the Internal Revenue Service. I have to go see my tax man and pay my taxes. You need to prepare to meet God because you will meet God. You will. Some of you need to prepare to meet relatives because you're going to meet relatives in the holidays. Sometimes it's something really good. Prepare to meet a baby because that baby's coming. Eight months, nine months. Whoa. That baby's coming. The day of wrath is coming. For all of us. The day when your life will change for all of eternity. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man once to die and after this comes judgment. Amen. And you will be judged. You alone. You completely. You thoroughly. And you publicly. 
You say, Brother Tim, I don't believe that. Well, you don't have to not believe it. I mean, you can choose not to believe it. Stick your head in the sand if you want. But you, if you believe the word of God at all, you're going to stand before holy God and you're going to give an account for the secrets of your heart. Everything in your life. And you'll be judged by him. And you have nothing if you don't have Jesus. God's judgment is according to what you have done, your deeds, your behavior. Verse 6, notice how he judges. He will repay each one according to his works. It's a quote of Psalm 62, 12. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says in chapter 16, verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his holy angels in the glory of his Father, and he will reward each according to what he has done. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in his body, whether good or bad. You will be judged. And judgment separates us. It always does. Verse 7 to verse 10. Look, he will repay each one to his works. Eternal life to whom? Those who do good. Eternal life to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek good. Glory, honor, and immortality. But what on the other hand? Wrath, anger to those self-seeking, disobey the truth, will obey in unrighteousness. There'll be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil. First to the Jew, also to the Greek. But on the other hand, glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what's good. First to the Jew, also to the Greek. Do you see this? There's two kinds of persons. Those who do good and those who do evil. Those who obey the truth and glorify God and those who do evil in self-seeking, disobeying truth and obeying unrighteousness. And the result is a division. There's two ways, two paths, two ends. There's two kinds of rewards or destinations. One's life and the other's death. One's hell and the other's heaven. I'd like to sugarcoat this for you, but I, I would not be doing what God's called me to do in faithfully preaching the Word of God. Amen. You can ignore the truth, but the end is death. Yes, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof leads to death. There's no hope without Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus said there are two foundations. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house and it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded the house and it collapsed. And it collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished because he taught them like one who had an authority. What about your life? Do you hear the word? Are you obeying the word? Or are you ignoring God's judgment? It's Thirdly today, God's judgment is impartial. It's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's no favoritism with God. There's no distinction with God. He judges all of us who are under sin. 
And God's judgment is always thorough and it is always true. And Jesus is there in the judgment as a judge. And it's part of the gospel that we preach. You say, Brother Tim, why are you preaching this? Why did Paul drive this point home so strongly? Because it is part of the gospel. Amen. We rob the gospel of its power and its authenticity when we try to do evangelism missions without preaching the wrath of God and His righteous judgment. And the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes, Lord. Amen. Because that is when we understand our lostness. When we understand that every one of us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Yes, Lord. And we go, God, what shall I do? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's the greatest news in all the world. Amen. But it's good because there's bad news. Not that God's righteous, no. That's not bad news. Not that God's a just judge. That's not bad news. The bad news is our sin. God is good. And he loves us. And that's why in chapter 3, verse 21, this is where Paul's moving with his argument. But I've got to jump ahead because I need some good news to end on. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. What is the redemption? He buys us back. And God presented him as a propitiation, Hallelujah. an atoning sacrifice. My translation says the mercy seat by his blood. What does that mean? Through faith. To demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint God passed over sins previously committed. But God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be Jesus and God himself just and the justify the one who has faith in Jesus. My God is a just and holy God. How has he provided for us? Listen we're condemned by our works, but we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was God's own son. He lived the perfect, perfect life. And he died on Calvary's cross for all of your sins and mine. And in the Old Testament, he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In the Old Testament, in Old Testament sacrifices, they would cast lots. 
And the lot fell on an animal, an innocent animal without spot or blemish. And that animal was slaughtered and its blood was carried into the holy place. And it was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And there was atonement made. The righteous wrath of God called for the death of an innocent to pay for the sins of the guilty. And it couldn't be the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It had to be the blood of a perfect man. And it was Jesus, the most lovely man that ever walked the face of the earth. And by his own blood, he presented it before a holy God. And God said, satisfied. Amen. And the other lot fell on an innocent Lamb without spot or blemish, they prayed over it. All the sins transferred symbolically and they carried it out in the wilderness. Far, far, far away. He was left alone. Never to return. Your sins are paid for and carried away and never to be brought back again. God's judgment will be satisfied. Either you will stand before holy God in your own sin without a Savior. And you will spend eternity in hell. Or you will come in the blood of Christ and His provision. And you will find life. Because your works will not justify you. Amen. It is his work yes, for you. That is the love of God. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for this great and wonderful, powerful teaching. Lord Jesus, as you've spoken today, I pray that we would not have deaf ears to hear. If there's someone here today who's never repented, never come home, never trusted Christ as Savior, I pray that today they would. Lord, there's somebody here today that's wandered off. I pray they would repent and come back home. Holy Spirit of God, do a work in our lives right now. Change us, convert us, save us. In Jesus' name.